Hey everyone, and welcome to SCU Buzz. I'm River, and if you're someone that gets bugged out by creepy crawlies, this episode might not be for you. Joining me is the Chair of Science at Southern Cross University, Professor Nigel Andrew. Nigel is an entomologist, which means he's an expert on insects. From butterflies to beetles, we will be taking a deep dive into all things insect. Welcome to the podcast, Nigel. It's great to have you. Cheers. Thanks, Bill. It's great to be here. So to start off with, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you first developed an interest in insects and entomology? Sure. So yeah, as you said, I'm, I'm identified as an entomologist, but I'm also, um, I also do a lot of work on insect ecology. So as, a, as an entomologist, I focus sort of on how insects relate to their environments and also how they, you know, and, and how they adapt and how they might sort of um, develop sort of ways of dealing with extreme temperatures and extreme rainfall events. So I got into insects pretty much as an undergraduate. I grew up, you know, I grew up in Sydney, went to you know, school in northwest Sydney. We had a big um, block of bush behind us. But I wasn't, no, I didn't sort of, I was never always interested in insects. I liked just running around the bush, just doing stuff. My mum basically let us off in the morning and at night she used to have a cowbell. She used to ring, so I had to get home within five minutes of the cowbell for dinner or else we got into all sorts of trouble. But I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I was looking at going to, um, to university and do a degree. So I actually did a, a Bachelor of Science and Bachelor of Arts at Wollongong University, so the most broad degree I could find. And from that, um, I had a, a major in ecology and also had a major in science and technology studies in the art side, which is like a, a history and philosophy of science. And through that, um, we, got, we did a lot of ecological research. So one of the first practices we did in, in, a, in biology was actually go out into a rainforest and dry sclerophyll forest and, and just look at stuff and pick stuff up and sample. And I was, you know, when I was in second year, one of the academics that was our, um, you know, teaching us, she, she put up an opportunity to, to go um, into the, the mid-north coast of New South Wales for a few weeks and do biodiversity research. And at that point, I was getting a bit tired of going home for two weeks um, between semesters at that point. So I thought this would be a great way to do something different during the, um, the between semester breaks. And through that process, what, we, what we're doing was complete biodiversity studies. So we're sampling birds, mammals, um, we're, we're sampling plants, um, doing a bit of soil sampling and also sampling um, invertebrates. And at that point, I was, I was a really keen birdo, so I was there to look at the birds. But then one of the, the, the technical officers who was on that trip, he just had an amazing knowledge of insects. And he was just really, I was just captivated in terms of his just knowledge and what he could do and what he could see and also the techniques that they were using to collect insects. You know, for two birds, you're just using binoculars, walking transects. So a lot of the mammals, you know, were putting out um, uh, Elliot traps. They were leaving out for, you know, overnight. You only get, you know, out of every hundred or so Elliot traps, you get one or two mammals um, to do spotlighting at the time. You know, you're basically walking along trans along um, fire trails in the middle of the night, um, looking up, you know, for, for um, mammals in the trees. But for insects, when we put these, they're called malaise traps, and they're, they're traps that um, allow, they just stick in the ground a bit of um, fly screen, in sort of standing up and then they have a trap at the collection point at the top and the bottom. And when we came back, you know, literally a week after putting them out, they just had thousands of insects in them. 
It was just amazing. It's like, what on earth is going on here? And there are these animals which, you know, we were looking at them and basically were saying none of these species have names. They haven't been known to science before. There's a few there that are common, but there's so many species in here that have not been identified. They haven't been, so nothing's known about them. And that was really intriguing to me that, you know, we're three hours away from Sydney, you know, a couple of hours away from Coffs and you know, around Port Macquarie and just all these animals that we just had no one could, you know, they weren't known to science and we were collecting them. And when we took them back, and so one of the things when we were doing these collections, um, we also found out that uh, Dave and I, the, the technical officer, had a similar um, sense of music taste. They're very eclectic music taste. And so when we we're going out doing field trips, we brought our tapes along and we're trying to sort of outdo each other with crazy, crazy music. So that was also a fun side of it. And so we had a really interest. He just got my interest up in insects. Then we went back to the lab, you know, um, just were able to put sort of tape. At that time, it was tapes, you know, it was um, the mid-90s. So it was, um, you know, from a, the classic tapes, you know, the, the mixed tapes. So that was great. And so we actually had this great time in the field, great time in the lab, and then just looking at stuff that we collected. And it was also when you see things, um, like when you see an insect just sort of in a tray that, you know, they're just like little black spots, but you put them under the microscope and they just come alive. They just, they're completely different. And the just, it was just a pure amazement to see the structures of these animals under the microscope and just to see what diversity, not just of what, you know, they look like, but all the individual characteristics of them. And that then spurned my interest in, in insects. And when I got to the point where I was considering doing honours, the, the academic who had taken us on these trips, like I'd gone on these trips a few times as a volunteer, and then I think the, the third or fourth time, she said, oh, I'll pay you if you come along the trip. So going from a volunteer, and then all of a sudden she was actually going to pay me to come on these trips. I said, well, that's great. And so that was, you know, that got me into seeing some, you know, a trajectory of a career in that path. Like, you know, I was getting paid for it. And then other um, researchers at Wollongong were then getting me to help out with their research and pay me as well, just not much, but still enough to pay the rent, enough to, to buy food. And that was, that was all I needed. And that was fantastic. And then I was looking for an honours project with um, one of the academics I've been working with. And she then said, oh, she's going on maternity leave. And so she wasn't available. But a new academic came to Wollongong to start. And she was really interested in biogeographical gradients, so latitude, longitude, and altitude. And she just got a project to work on diversity gradients from the poles to the tropics. So basically, this the classic idea is that there's more insect species in the tropics because there's more diversity, it's warmer. And one of the controversies about that is they weren't actually testing that in consistent habitats. So there's obviously more habitats in the tropics, but actually within a particular so individual habitat, they like to actually do a really strong comparison, was that the same? And she had an interest in working on um, micro arthropods, so tiny, really teeny weeny little things in mosses, so in bryophytes, so in what moss covers. And one of the things about mosses that she was really interested in is it can be found in Antarctica to the tropics. So it's the only type of vegetation that you can find along entire gradients. You can go from the poles to the tropics. You can also go from really close to sea level up to mountaintops. So that was a really fantastic way for working on that. And she said, oh, I'll be, um, I'll start, again, this was at Wollongong. She said, I'll send you down to Tasmania to work in some of the mountainous areas down there. And her and her partner were going to go over to New Zealand 
and do comparisons over there on altitudinal gradients. So collecting, again, collecting um, bits of moss, putting them, basically preserving them, then going back to the lab and actually extracting out all the, all the arthropods. And again, this was just amazing that, you know, someone would give me the opportunities at that time to go down to Tasmania, basically work in the wilderness areas for a couple of weeks, and then come back and then spend, you know, spend months in the lab playing around with, with not, to, not just insects, but also mites and springtails, which are sort of their... They're related to insects, um, but they're again tiny. So mites are well, mites are like little ticks, but they they're found within in the vegetation. And again, did this did well, and then she she as I mentioned before, these the bryophyte the mosses are found in Antarctica to the poles, and she uh, Antarctica to the tropics. But she got a research project to go and work in Antarctica as during the time I was doing my honours, and then. She was unavailable to go down to Antarctica. So three or four weeks before the end of my thesis, she said, well, do you want to go down to Antarctica and do this work down there? Because you've actually been doing, developing all the project um, through your honours. So you know what you're doing. Do you want to go down there? And I said, sure. <laughs> so, so that got me, again, going down and working in these amazing environments. So again, there's no, I didn't expect to be able to be asked to go down to Antarctica. It just happened. And so that, again, it was a really great experience doing that. And from that experience, I got to see, you know, that was a very extreme environment. So I got to see a lot of different things happening down there. And obviously, you know, just it's amazing seeing emperor penguins and Adelie penguins and the just those extreme environments, but also seeing these arthropods and sort of um, micro animals living in these extreme areas. And that, as part of that, sort of in the mid-90s, I was sort of getting interested more and more in the effects of climate change, you know, just to see particularly what a lot of the research had been done, particularly on plants at that point. So, um, you know, the Kyoto Protocol was was sort of signed in well, internationally in 1992. But to make up to that, get up to that point, there was a lot of work, particularly done on plants, how they responded to CO2 increases. And I was sort of, was sort of looking for supervisors to work on my PhD. And... I um, sort of was talking to colleagues of my, the, you know, the, the academics I respected at Wollongong, and then I went to speak to um, an academic at Macquarie University, Leslie Hughes, who at that time was relatively sort of young in her academic career, and she's now, she's now on the Climate Council, um, the Australian Climate Council, but she, was in, she had, again, sort of a project to work on insect responses to climate change, and particularly insect-plant interactions. So, so sure, sounds great. And um, again, that was a, a really great, opportunity to you know i was traveling up and down the east coast of australia so from atherton up in sort of north queensland down to batemans bay in in sort of southern new south wales collecting insects collecting plants doing looking at changes in sort of the the insect community so the 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 number of insects coming together and and how temperature changed but then also did some transplant experiments so i moved plants outside their normal range to a warmer climate to actually do a direct assessment of what a warmer climate does to insects colonizing plants in a warmer climate and that again was really that that was where at that point that got me really interested in particularly in insects and um, sort of focusing on on those animals and particularly in australia so again going back to that story i had about you know just insects um from the malaise traps i was collecting insects off acacias and so little was known on acacias you know there's a lot known about well more was known about insects on eucalypts because of a lot of the forestry a lot of the work that came out of scu um and sort of that that type of research a lot of forestry work done was done on eucalypt work because you know eucalypts are a dominant 
sort of plant species. But again, acacias actually dominate Australia as well in terms of where they're found. And we just knew nothing about these species. And so I was just like finding all these um, you know, new species and just trying to understand how climate change will impact on them. And that just led me, led me into different areas of entomology. So I was in, interested in insect responses to climate change as a community. Then I was interested in individual species responses and also then inter, inter, interested in like a species, you know, individual sort of populations of species. And so, and also their physiology. So how extreme, how, how much sort of pressure can, you know, an insect take with temperature and um, rainfall changes and moisture changes. So that's, yeah, so that's how I sort of got into it, sort of from little paths, you know, just coming to get and then sort of making from that, sort of getting great opportunities and just, yeah, taking them. Mm. So speaking of, of climate change, just like you were mentioning there at, at the end there, one of the research papers that you sent through to me to look over was about the black summer bushfires and the loss of more than 60 billion leaf litter invertebrates. What impact does that immense loss have on our planet and on our ecosystems? That's pretty huge. I mean, you know, when you think about a lot of the 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 big um the black summer fires, obviously there's, you know, we remember seeing the images of, you know, burning koalas and kangaroos running away from the fires, you know, obviously apart from the the human loss as well and and the and the loss of the um the the bushland, the plants and the trees. But also within that, the insects are taken out as well because they just they can't sort of beat the fires. And the estimates were done, yeah, you know, sixty this is just um in the leaf litter. So just on the on the ground, you find that, you know, a lot of what gets burnt is leaf litter. Um but when you particularly when they estimate sixty billion, that it's just a number that's really incomprehensible, you know, really just to think about, you know, pretty much wherever you're sitting at the moment, there's probably an insect within one meter of you, at least one. And if you're inside, yeah, that's probably, if you're outside, then there's probably a couple of thousand um, within sort of a meter squared of you. And when you go out into bushland, if you have a moist layer of leaf litter, there's usually can be thousands, tens of thousands of insects and arthropods in that leaf litter. And when you go to a, you know, a more sort of more regional scale, those numbers just scale up immensely. And what they're doing is a lot of ecosystem services. So if you, you know, we, we, obviously, we know things like earthworms do really amazing work in the soil, like to actually turn over nutrients. But in the leaf litter as well, there's, there's insects and arthropods that are breaking down those dead bits of twig, dead bits of leaf, and breaking that down into soil. So then it can go into the soil and be broken down further by earthworms. So when these, when these, you know, um, the fires, usually when you get a lot of, you know, Australian um, environments are fire prone. They've been evolved that way. And what has happened previously with indigenous burning, but also with a lot of forestry practices is that, you know, in order to maintain sort of a forest, they have fairly frequent low level burning. So it burns off the leaf litter, but when you get to something like a log, the fires will stop and they won't, there'll be a little bit of leaf litter that's actually protected and then the fire will either stop or jump it. So there's, there's, there's patchiness in the environments and that's how Australian environments have sort of evolved in that patchiness. So species can find refuges close to the logs, but in the black summer fires, basically they just, they just took everything out and then they took all the, 
all the leaf litter out, obliterated it, and also obliterated a lot of the um, the the logs in habitats. And you know, as we know, around um, this area as well, they they got into rainforests, so areas which do not normally burn, their fires got into, and that has a huge impact when you get these really intense fires getting into areas which don't normally burn because that sort of reduces the ability for you know insects to recolonize so the normal recolonization rate of insects was just obliterated from that and so it takes a lot longer for habitats to recover so usually um, you know after a, a you know a low intensity fire you know insects can pretty much come out immediately and start to sort of you know find new habitats and find new colonies and also the ants for example that are living underneath the surface they can come up and actually find food so but with these really extreme fires a lot of those those animals were killed but also if there's no food left you know for those species that did survive there's nothing for them to eat so it just has this knock-on effect and it it does um, then have an impact on the ability for a forest to recover so it's all about the um the ability for you know sort of decomposition to occur and so the, the movement of nutrients and energy so you usually get a lot of the if the the um the ground surface has been decimated by fire there's nothing to then rehabilitate it and that's where the major issues come in so over time it there is less there is less ability for sort of the recolonization of these habitats and also the rejuvenation of the ecosystems to come to, to come back. And that's where the critical issue comes in. So even though that the um you know a lot of the forests were obviously quiet after these, you know, because there was no birds there and so on, but there's also very few animals in the leaf litter, or if any at all, to recolonize. And so that actually has a really it, it kind of starts to cause major problems, really big changes in our forests as well. And so that's where just putting those numbers, getting an idea about how many insects have been obliterated by the fires, which is over, well and truly over above what a standard sort of, you know, um, low intensity burn would do in environment. So mm. it had a, yeah. And so having those numbers there and seeing that work um, that um, was, was came out of La Trobe University was, yeah, quite, quite amazing. Just, mm. yeah, it's just not like, wow, that's, that's huge. So, mm. Mm. so I've noticed here in Lismore, just speaking about species loss mm-hmm. and mass bug loss, uh, I've noticed here in Lismore that we've also lost our large population of Christmas beetles that used to emerge during late spring and summer. Mm-hmm. Do you know why or where these iconic Lismore insects have disappeared to? Well, they've been lost from pretty much everywhere. So even in Sydney and also when I was up in Armadale, the same thing was happening. There's been this ubiquitous sort of loss of a really iconic species. And there's probably, you know, there could be a few reasons for this. So I guess with Christmas beetles, we usually hear them and see them in in summer, obviously around Christmas, but they spend most of their life actually underground feeding. So um, just again, beetles go from being, so you see them as an adult, that might be about 5% of their lifetime as an adult. So they spend most of their time actually under the ground as a grub. And these guys, a lot of the time, will feed on the roots of plants or, and they'll also feed in the soil. And there's been a few sort of, there's been a few reasons thought why they might be going through this mass loss. Firstly, 
it could be because you know the it is you know it could be an effect of climate change. They they could be getting to close to their sort of upper limits of, of of temperature changes. So for example, when we talked about the black summer fires associated with that are really extreme temperatures. And so the species might be quite vulnerable to those extreme temperatures. So with I guess broadly with you know, from a climate change perspective, even though we talk about a 1.5 degree increase in temperature, for example, that 1.5 degree increase in temperature also is associated with a massive increase in extreme temperatures. I don't know if you remember from the, you know, the Bureau of Meteorology had to put a new color on their temperature sort of um, range because of, you know, temperatures going over 50 degrees. And we saw that recently as well where, you know, areas we've actually found, I think September was the hottest average temperature um, worldwide um, for, you know, as an extreme temperature. Um, and so with that, with those increases in annual temperature comes really massive increases in extreme temperatures. And they're the things that actually can cause insects to be vulnerable. But associated with that, there can also be changes in, in habitat. So for example, when, when a lot of trees are removed from habitat, that means that their, their feeding, their underground feeding can be lost as well. Or is, um, we, you know, there might be pesticide runoffs or changes, you know, if more grasses are put down, the, they, they might be not, the beetles might be not getting the nutrition they need. So even though there might be something there to feed on, they might not be getting the right nutrients out of that food to what they've had in the past few years. Um, and as I said, this is sort of happening across the board. It's been one of these, there is in general sort of this idea that there's been a massive insect decline worldwide. And a lot of the anecdotal effort, evidence has been, oh yeah, when, Know, people in the 60s and 70s were driving their cars they used to get more insects on the windscreen when they're driving than they do now and there's been the assumption oh yeah the the aerodynamics of the the windscreens also change the cars also change with the aerodynamics but a lot of people have you know anecdotally noticed that you know from that you know capturing method of the windscreen there has been a reduction in insects um sort of across the board so yeah christmas beetles could be impacted by Sort of more extreme temperature, or they could be, and but also that can be coupled with changes in their habitat. So you find that they they're put under more and more pressure by essentially the um the loss of of native eucalypt trees um around the area because a lot of the time there's generally more reduction in trees and addition of trees you know and then also with you know inundation like after the floods that you know they they basically get drowned underground as well. So you find that with um, the dung beetles and all sorts of other insects, which are ground dwelling, if they they get in inundated for long periods of time, so they just that will also kill them up. So they they can be, um, yeah. There's no one individual reason for it, but there is a fairly you know good record of the you know the loss of some of those species that are yeah those iconic iconic Australian species. Mm. So you mentioned there as well um, pesticide runoff being a factor to in affecting the population of insects. Is there a way that farmers and food producers can embrace insects rather than repel them with pesticides and toxins that could potentially decimate really vital species? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is knowing what's on your farms. Like again, one of the other one of the other areas I work in is dung beetles, and a lot of the farmers who, um, you know, they, they love having dung beetles on their properties, but they also want to drench their cattle to stop them getting um, ticks and actually, and also internal parasites. And one of the things about, 
uh, drenches, for example, is about, you know, the, the cattle are given the drench, but about 95% of the active ingredient just goes out the back end into their, their dung. And so if a dung beetle or if, you know, a number of dung beetles sort of come in and eat the poo, you know, immediately after they've been drenched or, you know, in the, in the, probably in the first four or five days after drenching, they basically get killed off. So one of the ways, for example, with dung beetles and drenching is to firstly, you know, try and get an idea of what insects are, are in, their, in their area, what insects are on their farms. And that can be simply not even not, they don't have to know what species they are. They can, you, you know, for example, with dung beetles, you can actually just get a bucket, put a dung pat into the bucket with some water, give it a swirl around and see what beetles come to the top of the water. And if there are beetles, you know, if, if there are insects that float to the top of the water, they're most likely, if they're, you know, they're between a couple of mils and sort of 15 mils big, um, they're probably most likely to be a dung beetle. So you know that if that's probably a good time not to drench because there are dung beetles around. And it also broadly, one of the, the usage of pesticides is to, their pesticides and also herbicides usually come in when farmers are usually wanting to, you know, obviously increase the productivity of their crops, but also potentially go to monocultures. So a lot of the, the, um, the ideas around having sort of um, multi-species and rotational crops and also having more, um, even simply having more native vegetation on, on farms. Now that, that potentially means that their profits go down, but the inputs also go down. So you have a small lower profit, but also you, you spend less on putting herbicides and putting pesticides into the system. And if you have, again, if you have multi-rotational cropping, that can be beneficial to the environment. So because you, rather than having a single crop that a pest species can decimate, you can actually have, you know, if you have um, a range of crops that will also bring in, um, you know, parasitoids and beneficial insects. Um, that can come in from, they, they, if they're in um, remnant forest, they can be there sort of all year round. And then, you know, for that, that small period of time when a crop is, you know, flowering or the pods are on it, there is actually something there to control pest species. So it's getting the farming practices to change rather than saying we want no damage at all to crops or only have like one or 2% to enable, you know, maybe just allow five to 10% damage but, um, so there's a just changing the threshold that is acceptable for damage, and and that also comes back to the consumers as well. You know, when you when if you go shopping at you know Coles or Woolworths, you're naturally attracted to fruit and veggies, which looks perfect, and and then you, you know you see things like the odd bunch there. You know, the odd bunch is where there is a bit of damage on them. Um, so as and the reason why you know that it goes down the entire food chain. So as consumers. We need to start to think about if we want that perfect bit of, you know, broccoli or the perfect bit of kale that, you know, that, you know, the species, you know, that a lot of the, the caterpillars won't feed on, that is actually leading to higher pesticide usage um, because, you know, that we, we, we want that perfect looking bit of fruit or veggie. And so to do that, farmers need to actually pump up pesticides to, to stop, you know, any insects feeding because they can't get the profits to move on. So there's sort of a very much a, an entire sort of um, value chain sort of issue going along here, not just for the farmers or the producers, but also up to us as consumers to say, maybe we should be you know, eating um, you know, and, or demanding sort of you know, some damaged crops. And I guess the good thing about that is you know, 
you know that they're good quality because if an insect's feeding on a crop, then it must be you know reasonable to eat. If it's a you know if it's a perfect bit of fruit and um veggie, going oh why wouldn't they want to eat that? So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned a lot in there about dung beetles, mm-hmm. and I understand that that's quite a big research interest of yours. Would you be able to tell us? What fascinates you about dung beetles and why they're important for the ecosystems, particularly in the northern rivers? Uh, dung beetles are amazing beasts because they, firstly, they you know they obviously you know reduce the dung well, of livestock. And one of the things that happened in Australia is that thirty or forty years ago, you know, we would not be able to enjoy a barbecue outside because of the bushfires around all the areas. You know, most of the East Coast, most, and also in the Western Australia, areas where cattle farming was happening was basically decimated by bush, was being controlled by bushfires because the bushfires would come in and lay their eggs in the dung and then they'll just get to hyper numbers. And we have, Australia actually has about 500 species of native dung beetle. So basically for every mammal species there's a dung beetle um associated with it but they you know if you think about a kangaroo or wombat they have you know if you've ever looked at their dung closely it's very fibrous you know for kangaroo dung sort of little pellets you know wombat dung's really cool because it's actually um you know a you know square prism they do crazy things with a dung but that's a different story um but there's there are dung beetles that actually feed on those and they that some of those species, about three of them, will be will actually feed on cattle dung, but they just won't break it down. You know, they'll feed on a bit of it, really enjoy it, but they won't completely sort of remove it. So the CSIRO um, a few decades ago started to introduce dung beetle species from Africa and also from Europe. Those and those beetle species had evolved with sort of larger herbivores like cows, for example, and um, and elephants and rhinos, sort of thing. So they they actually looked for you know ideal species to introduce to Australia and brought them in, and they basically then revolutionised sort of you know farming in Australia in many ways that they were able to you know a couple of hundred dung beetles on a cow pat would just decimate it within a few hours and just be gone, and so when and when dung beetles were really active, they could just decimate you know dung pats and the great thing about that is that it would obviously you know, re- remove the issue with um, bushflies, but also enable the, the farm to actually stay healthy because having a dung pat sitting on a bit of grass, you know, the, the cows won't necessarily feed near that. It sort of has a, it does actually work to um, increase, there is, you know, around the edge of dung pats, you get this growth, really nice growth of uh, feed, but the cows don't like it because it's a halo effect. And there's actually, so they actually have a, basically like you know stinky poo you don't want to eat close to that and so they'll eat away from it so there's actually it'll actually decrease the productivity of farms so a lot of the farmers then had to go and actually sort of you know take all the dung pats and, and sort of you know, put it back into the soil themselves and so the dung pats would the dung beetles were actually doing that role for them and they're then taking all of those nutrients and putting it back into the soil so there was actually a recycling of nutrients there and we're actually still introducing dung beetles into australia today and it's one of the interesting things that I have as a, you know, from my ecology background is to look at how, what the impacts of these introduced species have on native species, because there is generally sort of a, uh, um, the, the, the introduced species generally feed on cattle dung and the native species usually feed on sort of native marsupial dung. But again, we've got sheep 
And sheep do, you know, they make little pellets, but they also make big clumpy poos. And it's where you get an interaction between species happening there as well. So it's a really interesting dynamics where there is starting to be interaction between these species and we're trying to identify how they compete for resources. You know, do do they compete or do they how do they sort of, you know, deal with each other when, you know, if one species get to a dung pat first, does that influence what happens to other species that kind of colonize it? And that's really interesting for the Northern Rivers area because obviously we've got a lot of rainforest and national park areas, a lot of habitat where native dung beetles are found. But we also have a very productive farming areas. And we actually have of the 35 or so dung beetle species that have been successfully introduced into Australia, 13 are actually found in this area. So we've actually got the highest diversity of introduced dung beetle species in Australia. So they're very active and they're usually active for most of the most of the year in you know, during the, the cooler months, they're not so, you know, they're not so exciting and sort of working around. But coming into spring and summer, they it's when they get their real activity happening. So I'm interested in what dung beetle species are here and being active and also identifying, you know, there might be the same species found in the northern rivers, but also the same species might be found in Tasmania and how they are different because they've been taken from, you know, if they've been taken from Europe, brought over to Australia, you know, that actually can, we, we base the, we think what they're doing is exactly the same. But when you take a, an insect out of its natural environment and put into a new one, they can actually adapt in different ways. And so in some cases, they, they can actually effectively become a very physiologically like they're through their, um, their ability to deal with extreme temperatures or even their biology, the, how they feed how the, the internal biology works because they also have a lot of microbes in their gut because they're feeding on dung. They actually, you know, they actually need microbes to break down the, you know, the particular dung types and make the nutrients available. So to see what they're doing differently in Australia to what they do in their, their natural environment and also in Australia, if they're sort of starting to work in different ways, you know, if one's actually more efficient, you know, in the Northern Rivers compared to say Tasmania and how that impacts on their their capacity to break down dung and also how they they start to interact with each other because we're starting to see again we think about dung beetles as ecosystem service providers but there are a few species that are getting very good at what they're doing and very very good to the point where they're actually out competing other introduced dung species dung beetles so they, they're turning from an ecosystem service provider into actually an invasive species because they're actually out competing other species and dominating them and taking over their you know, their, their habitats. So there's a really interesting sort of switch going on in not necessarily in Northern Rivers, but particularly over in, in Western Australia, where there's a few, one introduced species in particular has just dominated the entire sort of uh, the farmland over there. And in South America, it's a real problem because they have a lot of native um, sort of beetles over there that are associated with uh, a lot of their, their mammals in South Africa. In South America, and when they've introduced dung beetles, those dung beetles have basically they've they've, they've done a cane toad effectively. They've sort of gone from working just staying within their own area, but then gone into the native habitats and starting to decimate them. So, yeah, that's a, a really there's a really interesting sort of interaction between you know from when do you when do you have an ecosystem service provider turn into an invasive species. 
So before the interview, we spoke really briefly about this new research paper that has made it into um, a lot of the major news outlets about uh, ant warfare. Mm -hmm. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about ant warfare and the research behind it? Yeah, so this is, um, again, there's a really cool paper that came out probably about a month or so ago, and it was looking at using computer simulations, so Age of Empires, so a a warfare game, and using that to try and simulate how ants, an introduced species and a native species actually interact with each other on, you know, on the ground and as a, as a warfare sort of, um, sort of theory. Now, obviously, most insects don't go through warfare as such, you know, because they, they basically warfare means complete death of, you know, one side or the other or decimation. And the thing about ants is that, their colonies, you know, an individual ant is um is usually found with a colony. So when we talk about again, when we talked about individuals, so dung beetle or a stink bug, they that individual is is you know male or female, and they'll actually sort of mate and produce offspring. Ants don't work like that. So they have a queen, and they then have um, different castes within the nest, and then they have the workers. And so what you find, so most of the ants, when you see, you know, in, in your house going after sugar or out on, you know, out in the um, you know, pavement or in the grass, they're the worker ants. Um, and they're usually the oldest ants in their colony. So you actually find that the, um, the queen has all her eggs sort of in a nest. And then the, and so there's, they again go through, they've got sort of eggs, they've got larvae and pupae and the adults. And the adults are what we, we see all the time. And so the youngest adults are usually in underneath the nest looking after the queen and the larvae and the pupae. And as they age, they might become fighting ants, like they might be protecting the colony or they might go out be forager ants because they, if they do get taken, there's less sort of loss of investment for the, the colony. So they've already done a lot of their work. But, you know, the reproductive sort of individual, the, the, the queen is still able to produce um, you know, offspring. And interestingly as well, all the ants you see foraging, they're all female. So you very rarely see male ants. You only see when you get flying ants. That's the only time males are in the, you know, the environment. So every time you see an ant identified as an ant walking along the ground, that's a female. So all the ants are females pretty much, you know. And this, um, the work that is using, I'm looking at the Age of Empires, was to take this simulated um, environment to see how different, you know, effectively different strategies. So in a simple landscape, for example, if you put, um, they, they were just testing two species. So a native species, which is a meat ant, and they're, you know, they're ubiquitous Australian ants. So they're the ones that make the, the mounds. So they actually are found in big numbers. So pretty much they're the most common ant species in Australia. And again, interestingly, there's probably more biomass of meat ant than there is cattle or even actually biomass of mammal on australia they're just huge numbers there meat ant nests can stay in the same area for decades and obviously there'll be different individuals different queens but the same nest can be found in the same place for for decades and they forage they've got fairly wide foraging like they, you know 50 100 meters they can go foraging from the nest but we also have introduced species the argentine ant and they're a lot smaller than meat ants, but they can make super colonies. So they actually, particularly, um, they their their numbers are sort of 
hyper large, you know, we're talking about billions of insects being lost in the fires. Now, these ants can have actually have, you know, billions of individuals within these mega colonies. They're just massive. And what ants do is that they fight each other for boundaries. You know, they fight each other for resources because, you know, they're an individual ant by itself is replaceable within a colony. And they actually will actually start to fight each other. And so what this simulation was doing is to see if ants follow, um, I think it's called Lancaster's law in, um, in fighting. So they said, if you've got a, if you're on a, effectively on a, on a flat battlefield, the, you know, if you've got big numbers of, you know, of fighters versus small numbers, those, you know, the, the larger, the, um, sort of the, the army, they will naturally win on a fairly basic, you know, on a flat battlefield because they can sort of surround their, the enemy and basically sort of take them over. But in a more complex habitat, smaller armies can do well if there are tunnels or if there are hills or if there's vegetation smaller armies can do better or actually can can actually protect themselves and actually fight you know guerrilla fighting effectively and particularly when they're larger so because they can you know individual larger ants can look after themselves better in a more complex environment than a smaller one can and so what they were finding with this research is that um you know Meat ants, which are reasonably sized, you know, they're probably about 10 mils inside, in size, they can actually protect themselves a lot better, you know, when they, they compared, I think, 20 meat ants to 200 sort of Argentine ants. And they found that the modeling they did in Age of Empires did actually follow us, that the simulation did actually make itself out in, in real time as well with the ants, because when you put them into a more complex environment, the meat ants could do better. But if in a simple environment, the, the Argentine ants, the smaller ones with higher numbers, always won. So again, it was this really interesting comparison between sort of the the warfare sort of theories of humans use and also then going into these simulation games where, you, you know, the simulation game is great because you can actually modify the environment and play with it. And then you can actually test that out in the real world with animals like ants, which have, they have a very, in, in terms of their colony structure, you know, a lot of it is hierarchical. So it is, you know, in many cases, very similar to an army <laughs> in the way that they work. Yeah. So it's kind of really fun. And that, yeah, it was a, it's just a really neat way to actually see sort of a theory go into sort of a simulation, um, a computer simulation, and then actually test it out in the real world. Uh, on a ba- you know, simple real world um, scenario, but that is very much, you know, a way that you can actually predict how animals like ants will start to pr- attempt to protect themselves. So if you have, and it goes back to a lot of things where there is a, if it's a simple environment, a lot of introduced species do well. But if it's a more complex environment, that's where a lot of native species are able to survive and benefit. So you can actually sort of even go further with that to say that when we simplify environments, native species generally will do poor, introduced species will do well. And we find that actually across you know, a range of, you know, we find it in you know, for a lot of pest species, they introduce pest species, they do better in monocultures, but if you actually have a polyculture, you have a bit of remnant forest or remnant vegetation where native species can go to or move in or out of, that's when you find the native species actually do better. So there's a whole range of, you know, sort of ways you can look at this type of research going forward. Mm. So this is a bit of a silly question, but I have to ask it because it's it's on my mind right now. Um, obviously, ants don't have swords and weapons like we do in, in human warfare. How does an ant colony 
how do they fight in a warfare? <laughs> they've got mandibles. So they've actually got these big, so at the front of there, so what they use for feeding is these um, basically big teeth on either side. And some of them are when they, they, you know, things like meat ants, you know, if you, you know, and they also sting each other, so they've got stings, um, so to actually, so they can, meat ants in particular, if you've, <laughs> If you've ever inadvertently stepped on a meat ant's nest, you know about it because they basically run up your leg and start biting you and they just sort of bite you and they'll just continue biting you. And what meat ants do as well, if a, like if an intruder, a species, even a meat ant from another colony gets close to that colony, they will send out sort of, you know, the worker ants and they'll basically just bite them, but they'll also get hold of their legs and just pull them. So they've, they've just ripped them apart, effectively. So they bite them. They usually, even though the ants are well protected, they'll bite them on their, on their, um, sort of their, where their, their limbs connect to each other. So in the soft, trying to get into the soft tissue and start to sort of, yeah, basically just rip them apart that way. So they're pretty gruesome little animals. And, um, and again, they're, they, they will actually fight and they're, they're programmed to sort of fight for as long as possible until they get rid of the predator, a predator or an intruder. And you find, but you are also, that's to the extreme, but a lot of times when they're fighting, they, you know, meat ants will actually, when they're, you know, two meat ant colonies are against each other, they'll actually form lines. So they'll kind of form a line, but then stop each other. And so they're sort of like a, it's kind of like a weird standoff. It looks like they're fighting, but they're actually, what they are doing is tasting each other with their antennae. Because they don't have like you know a tongue like we do, but they taste the meat. A lot of a lot of insects do it as well. Is that they have their their taste receptors on their antennae. So what they'll do is basically touch. They they work out if it's a um sort of a species, uh, individual in their nest, or from an intruder nest, or one that is you know a friend or foe by the um by basically touching each other with their antennae. And so then they'll actually if they find it's a foe, they'll actually come up and stop them there. And if both both colonies or both nests get enough individuals, they'll follow, they'll basically have these lines of individuals, and that will be identified as the sort of the the new sort of um, edge of range line between them. So they've got some weird, yeah, they've got some really interesting sort of behaviours in that sense. Wow, I I I remember speaking of interesting behaviours. I remember as a kid, I was really fascinated by ants and would observe them quite a lot. And what I observed looked almost like a, a cemetery. Mm. where I noticed the ants were carrying deceased ants to a particular spot on the back steps mm. and dumping the bodies there or burying the bodies there. Mm. Is that is there any research into whether or not that is actually a, a practice of ants to have cemeteries or places where they put the deceased bodies? Yeah, it's basically it basically is effectively like a cemetery because they, they're cleaning up their areas. And so it's like they've got the cemetery part, but they've also got food stores. So in their nests... They'll have particular galleries where they'll actually, you know, in, in even underground, they'll put sort of, if they're a deceased ants, they'll put them into a gallery, um, one gallery, but then they have a food gallery where they'll put all their seeds and all their, their nutrients. They'll have different galleries for where the, um, you know, where the offspring, where the, the eggs and the larvae are being sort of um, looked after and also a gallery for the queen. So they actually, they're, because they are um, social animals, they have to keep their you know, they're, they're placed clean because otherwise, you know, it's like, you know, if, if you have a lot of deceased animals or it's a messy environment, you get bacteria growing and also fungi growing and pathogens growing. And so that 
being social, they have to actually keep their areas very clean. So they will actually move, yeah, sort of the deceased away from where their food and where the um the, the offspring are actually growing and or and actually sort of developing. So yeah, they'll actually have these sort of little little places where they'll put the, the dead dead animals. Um and interestingly they a lot of the for example in um there's a lot of um thermophilics, there's a few thermophilic species in the arid zone, so they're ones that love really hot temperatures. So now, if you go out into the arid zone, you know, when it gets really hot during the day and if insects are actually left, if they can't get back to their you know, nest, they'll die. But then some species love that really hot temperature. So if once the temperature of the soil surface gets above 50 degrees, that's when they emerge. So when, other, when all the other insects have basically stopped foraging or some have died, they'll come up and start to forage then for all the insects that have died and actually go for that with those ones as well. So yeah, there's um, then there's lots of really interesting sort of um, ways the insects can play in that sense as well, um, to make to get to get food, um, and also to stop they using the temperature so that they, the thermophilic species don't don't have to compete with the more dominant species that are usually foraging in sort of more benign conditions. Mm. So Nigel, we've got time for one last question, and then I have some rapid fire questions just to finish okay. us off. But the last question I wanted to to ask you was, what are some of the biggest challenges facing insects in Australia and what can individuals do to help? Well, again, there's, you know, obviously things like land use change and climate change are, are massive. And one of the, the, the biggest issue, like insects, I think I mentioned before, with any changes to their habitat, there's winners and losers. And usually the winners are the ones that respond really quickly. And they're generally more the pest species. The ones that are losers have more very specific habitat needs and are actually sort of within sort of more localized environments. So a lot of what we can do to actually, you know, look after insects is actually preserve the habitat. So that is, you know, if there's a remnant forest, it might not look pretty, but if it's if it's actually a remnant, then that is ideal to be preserved because that actually will harbour a really unusual suite of insects in there. And, and, and also, you know, it, they're actually sort of most likely to be um, a, a, you know, able to colonise areas outside of that. And it's usually, you know, if you're thinking about sort of looking after remnants, if they're trying to stop them being isolated. So again, one of the things, particularly in farmlands or even with parklands, is they usually have a remnant, which then has a really sort of strong border between that and, you know, uh, you know, a monoculture or a um, sort of an urban environment. So one of the ways, again, to look after the insects in that area is to give them the opportunity to, like an ecotone, for them to move out and spread out of that. So it's always connecting. If there are remnant bits of habitat, connecting them can be really important. And even if we don't, the most of the things that is, um, about insects, we don't have to know what species are in there, but if there's a habitat and you see s- stuff happening, if there's you know new growth in the habitat or if there's remnant fo- remnant vegetation, if there's birds in there, if there's mammals in there, then there's most likely going to be insects in there doing their thing. So a lot of it is about sort of yeah preserving the habitat initially and then trying to expand that habitat out to make it connected. With other bits of remnants if it's possible so that that would probably be you know the easiest way to do things and also 
if you've got a you know backyard plant put plants in you know and maybe you know ideally native native species because particularly not just native species to australia but locally grown like local species to this area because again that can help the local insects sort of adapt to their environment because if you if you bring in a lot of introduced species some of the native species might like it but also you bring in you're more likely to get um sort of the more ubiquitous common species feeding on those and then that out competing the the, the local local species as well so it's really it is really difficult for to know what is you know a good insect versus a bad one and that's that's the hardest thing for for people to under to people to identify because a lot of the species very few species identif- are identified except for the the really the, the pest species there's lots of information on the pest species but if you if you preserve the habitat and give a diverse habitat then other you know some of the predatory insects or some of the parasitoids can actually start to control those pest species as well so that's probably the yeah the uh, longish answer to a short question but yeah preserve the habitat and sort of you know extend the local habitat if you can fantastic are you ready for your rapid fire questions sure okay what is your favorite insect um well i've got two i've got so one's um it's a botany bay weevil it was the first insect identified by Captain Cook when he got to Botany Bay. So in 1788, when he got back to Botany Bay, it was this little green and black weevil, about three centimetres long, and it's found on acacias. And it's, it, when you touch it, it plays dead. It actually falls off the leaf. So it's, and it's a big weevil as well. Um, the other one, again, is another acacia species, and it's a, it's a bug. Um, so and it's actually it's called um, it's an acacia um, bug. It's called Sextius virescens. It's a species name, and it's got these three amazing horns. That's so two horns that come out of its shoulder, and then one long horn that goes over the from the just basically from the shoulders right over the neck. And it's this green, amazing. Like they've got these horns coming out of them, and it's really cool. Why are cockroaches so hard to kill? Um. Well. Again, there's a few hundred species of cockroaches in Australia. Most of them are native, so you're probably only talking about three or four species that are introduced. And so the the introduced species that you find in your house, they're basically hard to kill because they're really good at living with humans. We we basically make perfect habitat for the introduced cockroach species. The native species are really amazing. They've got they can have racing car stripes down the side of their body, you know, fluorescent green, orange. The ones from um, North Queensland can live up to nine or ten years, and they just live in leaf litter. They're not they're not problematic at all, like the native species. But um, the big, you know, you got the Americana cockroaches, the German cockroaches, those ones that live in your houses are the introduced species, and they're hard to kill because we make great habitat for them. Why do mosquitoes bite some people and not others? They're attracted to. Um, mainly the um, carbon dioxide that we release, and so we actually, you know, humans. We, we give off different scents. You know, some people it's more obvious than others, but we actually, you know, particularly, you know, some on individuals, you know, um, mosquitoes might be attracted to more the shoulders or the ankles or different parts of our body. And it's because we actually, when we sweat, we actually give off a different amount of carbon dioxide. So some people give off, you know, it's basically an odor. So some people give off a, and you call it a bouquet, it's that they give off a different bouquet which attracts the mosquitoes to them and not to other people. So it's about not just about sweat, but about the 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 chemicals that we release when we are sweating. And it doesn't those sort of chemicals don't necessarily get covered if you put on deodorant. So because you know you're obviously not going to cover yourself entirely with deodorant, 
Uh, but you know, yeah, your ankles give off a different smell to your shoulders or to your forehead when, when, you know, and that will attract, you know, different people will get attract mosquitoes attracted to them because of that. What is the biggest bug? Probably well, the biggest one in Australia is the, um, that sort of, um, Northern, um, cockroach, the, and they get up to about, I think 60 grams. They're a big beast. So in terms of weight. They're quite large and they, they live for nine or 10 years as a, you know, as a, and actually you can see them. I mean, you do find also probably in terms of the largest length, there's, there are stick insects. There's some giant stick insects to get up to 35 centimeters long. So they're pretty impressive as well. And you can even get like going, so yeah, there, there are some big, big insects out there that they usually obviously don't move very quickly. They're not sort of really agile and they're not, Sort of species again to really high numbers because they are that large numbers. Tiny insects, you know, you can get actually insects down to half a millimeter. So some of the parasitic wasps as adults, they and they they can get teeny weeny as well. So there's a huge range size range in them. What is the most lethal insect? I mean, there's plenty of insects. It it depends on lethal to whom and also one to, to what and also the the concept. There's a there's actually, for humans, there's, there's actually a pain tre- threshold called the Schmidt Index where a guy called Schmidt actually went around and got bitten or um, sort of, yeah, he, he got, yeah, sort of different insects to bite him or to sting him. And so he made an in- uh, index out of that from one being, you know, like a honeybee, which is painful, up to like a, another, some of the insects in South America, which basically put him out for three weeks and he nearly died. So... Yeah, so it, and that's on a pain threshold. Um, so there are, you know, there's a lot of even you know something like a honeybee can be very lethal to someone if they've got a, an anaphylactic shock to them. So you find there is a whole range of um, you know insects that will will you know be predators, but also parasitoids to others. You know, you find probably some of the most gruesome ones are the parasitoids, which actually live inside other animals and they grow. So, you know, think of like Aliens, the movie that that came that basically came out of, you know, the ideas that happen with with insects where they just live. You know, a lot of the parasitoids live inside the live body of another animal. And they keep them alive till they actually can grow till they're fully adults. And then they'll just break out of their body when they're fully adults and then kill their their host. So, yeah, it, it's all dependent on how gruesome you want to get. <laughs> <laughs> uh, why are some insects like moths attracted to light? Um, they potentially, sometimes it's thought that they actually might think it's the moon. And so they actually think they're actually moving to the moon, but also they, they're attracted to, um, sort of areas where other, other individuals are their their species are attracted to so they can find a mate. So sometimes they're attracted to lights. Other times they're attracted to, um, rocky outcrops in, in, in parks and they, there's, there's, I think yeah, there is sort of evidence that they they actually are just um, yeah the the attraction isn't is basically as a focal point that they come to and they can they can potentially find mates there. Nigel, thank you so much for being with us here today. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. No, it's, it's been great. Cheers. Thank you. We would like to acknowledge the Widjibal Wyabal people of Bundjalung country as the traditional owners of this land. We would like to acknowledge and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. <laughs>